Did you get Mazzy back there? No. Hey, come here, Mazzy. Mazzy. Come on. Nope. Come here. Okay, June. Back up now. Okay. Get in the back. Get in the back. Cool. Okay, on to Lucky Bear. On to the Lucky Bear. So, the way this thing got its name was this this thing was bought from an old bear poacher. I mean, he was he just went up there and hunted black bear for yeah. skins and I mean, who knows? He may have, he may have sold their gall or. Chinese medicine, that's big time, man. Yeah, that's some, uh... Black bear galls, serious, serious shit. You get some big time money for that. Two dogs, one truck, two mason jars of moonshine, one pack of cigarettes, and a lot of love for the star of this episode, Kevin Forrester. He is an old friend of mine, my Rosetta Stone to all things hillbilly. That's his descriptor of choice and my perennial guide to the mountains of Southwest Virginia. This episode we recorded last spring on my Appalachian road trip was a milestone. The first I ever recorded outside in the great outdoors with my dog next to me. Kevin and I talked on the porch of the Lucky Bear Cabin, an old poaching homestead, because we were actually locked out of the place. So, while our kids were off wandering for hours and our dogs lolled about in the shade, we got deep into some excellent, if not totally legal, alcohol. And Kevin told me, without admitting guilt, of course, how he would have made that moonshine if it were he that had done so. We talked about cops and bootleggers and distillers and Appalachians and Californians. And let me tell you something. As we close in on an election where some people are setting up a false choice between city Jews like me and mountain men like Kevin, I know they're wrong. Listen to this episode. That man is my brother, just like San Francisco homeless advocate Vero Mahano is my sister, or the New Orleanian rocket scientist and pitmaster Howard Conyers is my brother and countryman as well. I fucking love this country and all of these people in it, and I love doing a show that takes them, through me, to you. Let's go. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip. Drinking with exceptional people around the world. What is it? As soon as these lids come off, we'll feel like brothers again. All right, what what lids are we talking about here? Mm, the stainless steel rings on top of those mason jars that hold illegal distillate. Illegal distillate. Untaxed liquor. We have both legal... And illegal distillate, which means that we have fake and real moonshine. <laughs> Let's just set some terms before we start. One, you're an old friend of mine. I don't wish any uh, harm or legal troubles on you. So for the purposes of this podcast, we will say you're a moonshine educator. <laughs> and I'm not going to I'm ask historian. you to uh, confirm or deny whether you are now or have ever been actively a member of any moonshine making. <laughs> it's all alleged. <laughs> it's all alleged, that's right. This is Southwest Virginia, which is part of Appalachia. This is where you're from. Where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in Damascus. 
It's a very small town on 58. And it's basically the end of the road. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Uh, but there's something about, I think, the town of Damascus, because it is, uh, it's both part of Appalachia and has been forever, but it's on the Appalachian Trail, so it's also been a hiker. It's the only town that's like directly the, on the trail. It's the first town that the Appalachian Trail actually goes through. All the other towns or, or communities you have to hike off of the Appalachian Trail to and then hike back on to finish your hike. But Damascus, the trail goes right through town. It goes right up Main Street. I mean, it's always been this place yeah, where you have a lot of people, a lot of travelers coming through. So it's got roots here, but it's also just got this, this tidal flow of people from all over the country and all over the world who will come through yeah. uh, as they're hiking. And I kind of feel like that's how, how it came to be that you and I met like you are always from this place and of this place but but not only <laughs> right i mean that's right uh, that's the way i think about you anyway you meet a lot of people in a town like this right and uh you happen to meet one such person who uh, went to high school with me in southwestern san francisco <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you guys had ro- uh metro adventures together uh that is that is correct uh, many years you guys been uh Good friends for a long time. So that's how that's how it came to be that uh, I know a man who can tell me that this $22 bottle of Kings County Distillery Moonshine corn whiskey that I'm holding here, $22 for 200 milliliters, is not actually moonshine. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, all right. So let's talk about Give that. Give a twist. Let's find out. Uh, to just define moonshine for me. Well, moon, moonshine's untaxed liquor. It's untaxed distillate. Anything distilled over 180 proof that hasn't been channeled through the correct government agency is moonshine, technically, if you get caught with it. But now, without putting too fine a point on it, that means this is an oxymoron. Like, this can't actually exist. You can't have... Uh, well, you know, okay, so a, an official moonshine Kind of what the, the, the slang has become, an unaged, uncured, unbarreled distillate. So they're, they're calling moonshine white liquor. And that basically just means young and raw. You won't find many places that are selling a product, putting out uh, <laughs> what you would actually probably buy out of the back of somebody's truck. Because uh, that stuff's been aged all of, you know, maybe 48 hours when you get it. It's hot. It's hot. It needs it needs to rest and mature if you want to pass it around among friends most of the time. Even even the best of it, it's going to have some burn to it. So whether legal, you know, distillate that is just trying to get some of that Appalachia charm in its name by calling itself moonshine or right they're, they're capitalizing on a on a um, piece of illegal you know it's something illegal is cool right it's like that it's, outlaw it's vibe niche right yeah, right it's absolutely um but something you shouldn't have whether it's that or whether it's the actual an actual untaxed distillate uh <laughs> right they come in it's either grain so it's a whiskey or it's going to be fruit based or berry based so it's yeah i would i would say i would say uh, a big majority of them are going to be grain based got it corn oats barley to round out our trilogy here we've got my uh my brooklyn bought uh brooklyn distilled brooklyn priced uh right. moonshine here <laughs> and then you've got a, a butternut 
This was, yeah, this was kind of an experimental, just to see what would happen. Uh, it's made from butternut squash. Okay, that is an unusual moonshine. That's it not, is. Okay. It is. And again, we're only alleging that you made these. It's alleged. Friends, it's friends uh, of friends of friends. <laughs> uh, a friend of a friend. There you go. Kevin Bacon, I think, is actually the person that made this. <laughs> Got the wrong Kevin, guys. It's the wrong Kevin. It's Kevin Bacon. Uh, he, he passed this on to me. And the, the third one that we've got here in the large mason jar. Uh, that's, that's, that's a grain, a grain based. Okay. So this will also be kind of so a So one, we have, we have two that were made as, as allegedly hobbyist distillates. One is from, uh, a grape product and one is from a grain product. Mm-hmm. One's been aged a little bit in some oak and one is just set in a mason jar. Okay. All right. Well, now which one should we start? Should we start with the fake moonshine? I would definitely start with the the Brooklyn moonshine. Okay. Well, I mean, it's hard to tell. I'd I'd smell them all first. Okay. Let's do that. And then, and then I'd I'd base my my tasting on that. It's a beautiful. It's a great little bottle. It looks very prohibition. Right. I mean, um, they're it's a low key low key label. Pretty sweet. Oh, yeah, the fine prints on the back. That's great. Right. It's really nice. They do mention the Surgeon General on there. Just not, he doesn't usually get a shout out in most okay. Mason jar. And this is also 40, this is, you know, it's 80 proof. They've, they've, they've backed this down to 80 proof. Yeah, you can smell that. It's right. It's, it's pretty soft. Mm. I put my nose in this large jar of yours earlier. And <laughs> it I, is not I, soft. No. It's got a nice nose. Wow. It's, uh, that will, that'll burn the hairs. It will. Allegedly, again, it measured out at about 147 when it came out. So. <laughs> That's what Kevin Bacon told you. That's what Kevin Bacon said. We're going to go first here. All right. You're going to give give that a give your butternut a, a beak there. I mean, that all, I mean, that smells pretty fucking it's, interesting. It's very complex. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a lot going on. Now, if you were the person who had made this butternut, would you be be proud of what happened there i well we'll we'll see in a little while okay. uh, as soon as we taste it i mean and the proof's in the pudding <laughs> all right uh so what should we start with i what's, would definitely start plan? with the king's county because it's that's uh that is the lowest alcohol by volume yeah. of any of them so i would start there i mean yeah it's nice i mean it's a real that's a real soft alcohol it's nice. Got a nice after finish. Got a little. Got a little heat on the after finish. Doesn't burn your throat at all. Just uh, gives your tongue a little tingle. You know, and I'm of course making fun of, you know, <laughs> Brooklyn uh, Kings County Distillery for creating a Brooklyn moonshine that is super legal and heavily taxed, and also very expensive. <laughs> well, but, it's, it's it's New York City's oldest whiskey distillery. <laughs> that's what they said. But but this is also something that you have told me about distilling and making moonshine that I think bears repeating. It's just like, it's fucking hard. It's a, it's a craft. I mean, it's a real craft. It sure is. And so the people who are making this up in Brooklyn, whether they get to charge a lot for it and have excellent marketing or something, they're really good at what they do and they should get respect for that. Right. No doubt. That's a clean, that's a very clean product. Yeah. Um, In the same way that the people who are, you know, had allegedly made, what's in the mason jars here are also really fucking good at what they do. Absolutely. And they should be given the, the same kind of respect, I guess, that moonshine is not about 
just ad hoc or jerry rigging something or you know <laughs> so much as like well it, the it, kind of things that distillers have to go through with like trial and error and practice and to be an artist about it yeah you you do but that's you know a lot of a lot of moonshine gets made by that very jerry rigging uh slapstick you know some of the some of the rigs that you know you wouldn't believe some of the rigs that'll actually produce alcohol anything with sugar will ferment anything that'll ferment will make alcohol if you can make it boil just a little bit and then cool it down just right you can make alcohol out of it the, the craft comes in making a product that is notable and being able to replicate that product right. over and over and over yeah it's like that old trope where they're like you know the the trappist monks in belgium were asked you know what their favorite beer in the world was and they said american budweiser because it's so consistent like it's so every time so damned hard to do what budweiser does and make 50 million cans of the same fucking beer yep um and they they had a, a respect for that that I, I i guess would send the the craft beer heads uh <laughs> anybody sort of... that's tried to make that beer uh, you know yeah. i've had some of the best beers i've ever had in my life in somebody's garage and it can't be replicated and the next um, one is just a total terror. It's a shit bag. <laughs> there it is. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. What, what do you suggest from the the, uh, the Kevin Bacon I would, I would go to the grape product. I would go okay. to the aged, uh, slightly an oak. Yeah, so this has got a little bit of color butter, to it. But the butternut product. Uh, the other two are clear whiskeys. This is the grape product, which is essentially like a brandy. Yes. But it's got a, a little bit of a whiskey uh, look to it because of the oak. That yes. You, that somebody had had made this in. Wait a second, you're clearing it up. So this, yeah, this, this is, is grape. This is grape. And the oh, that's okay, brand, that's that. Ed, that is brandy that you're drinking. All right, the the aged stuff is brandy. The clear stuff is butternut. Holy shit! Okay, yeah. So you that's, made like butternut dragon fire. <laughs> like that shit is. That is. Well, like, it, was, it was rather surprising. I was, you know, I was, I was surprised when I was told the story. <laughs> surprised when when it turned up uh suddenly at a hundred and i mean kevin bacon told me about it but i didn't believe it until i tried it all right fox and we're on this aged grape which is an aged brandy and that's super interesting because it's like yeah that's a pretty complicated thing it's got this kind of it's strong it's fortified but it's got this like plumminess to it exactly yeah you, you can really taste the fruit on the aftertaste, mm. wow! It really comes through the sugar and the the sugar and the fruit that was fermented really comes through, and that's that's touching me in my sternum mm-hmm. in a way that my friends in Brooklyn were not able to. Well, do. it's significant. I mean, if if you tasted the <laughs> Kings County in its original collection container, mm-hmm. it would have it would be very reminiscent. That is unaged corn liquor, right? They're not lying about that. It's it's watered it's it's water backed right to eighty proof, which is most you know most people's palate falls between eighty and hundred proof. Most people will not enjoy over a hundred proof. Huh? They just don't. They just won't enjoy it. They, it burns. Uh, it leaves an aftertaste, and they can't they they can't uh, they can't stomach it. What is wrong with me? Yeah, <laughs> it's a genetic mutation that I also have. Uh, We're the vanguard of a future of people who drink pure 
ethanol. All right. It's uh, well, you know, um, I think part of my affinity came from just just from uh, convenience. Yeah. You know, where I grew up, we had blue laws, and alcohol was hard to get at the store. Um, and the, the alcohol you could get at a store wasn't really worth it's three two beers, so <laughs> it's not much not much punch in that pack. Right. So tell me about that. Like, so this is Washington County, Damascus, mm-hmm. Virginia. Yeah. Growing up in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Uh, probably eighties by the time you were. Uh, by the time I was hanging around, worried about what they were doing with the beer counter. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was in the eighties. Uh, so there were blue laws which restricted the sale of alcohol. On Sunday, but not not just the way that I saw it in Massachusetts, where it's like Sunday morning they they block off the uh, the liquor cabinet in the, in the you know grocery store. But it's like right. it's like a, a a Jewish Sabbath thing. It's like sundown Saturday, right? Seven o'clock Saturday night. Yeah, they chained up the doors on. I mean, they put a they they physically put a chain through the doors of the beer counter at seven o'clock on Saturday night. Um, so if you were if you were going to buy beer at the store, you had to do it at six fifty five. To, to please our Lord. <laughs> uh, and then when you were talking about the, the stuff that you could buy, what is, tell me what 3-2 beer is. Well, it's alcohol. It's, it's beer that's been watered back to 3.2% alcohol. So like regular, nowadays regular, you know, the beer you buy is 5 point and up. Most of the beer is 5.5. You know, and craft beers are running up around 9 and 10% alcohol. You can buy, I think it's up to... 12% beer or 11% beer at a grocery store. So there's craft beers putting out, you know, 8 and 9% alcohol beers that uh, if you're used to drinking 3-2 and drinking five or six beers at a time, you're going to drink two beers and know you drank two beers. So that's basically like a, a Salt Lake City gin tonic, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. you're, you're talking yeah. about... You get wave sh- the bottle over your glass and... and Put it back under the counter. <laughs> right. Where you're like, you, you miss out Saturday night, didn't get your alcohol. Monday you go in and find that all of the beer is essentially a near beer um, <laughs> that you had. And and then the state, as it, it, which is not unique to Virginia, but the state also, the liquor board controls the sale of hard alcohol. And that's true to this day, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, if you, um, if you want hard liquor, you have to go either to a, a restaurant slash bar or if you want to purchase it for yourself, you have to go to a state-run alcohol beverage control store. And for you, the context of, of some of this stuff, too, of why people got into moonshining is not because they didn't want to be able to play by the book or, you know, for, for some sort of innate criminality in, right. in the hearts of people right. here. No. no, no. But it's because they were under this tremendous pressure that's like, you know, prohibition that lived on, you know, in kind well, of small even, ways. Even before prohibition, I mean, the easiest way, you know, if you're a farmer back here in, in the mountains, you're a long way from town. There's not many people that are going to come out here and buy your grain. You you know, you, you might be able to grow it, but you've got you've to get that product to somebody that'll buy it before you can sell it. I mean, anybody that's got a team of horses and an axe can clear some land and start planting some corn you get 15 acres of corn on the ground there's no way you can get all that corn to town uh, on your back so you crush it up put some water in it boil it down and it's a whole lot easier to take 50 gallons of corn into town no fucking way 500 so, bushels so that's really a, it's like a geography thing too absolutely it's like the driftless you know the the, the that part of the uh 
the country around Iowa and a little north that never got crushed by glaciers and therefore remained <laughs> hilly yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and all sorts of like social and, and, and political, you know, eventualities came out of that. And this is the same here. I mean, I, you know, you were saying about the Appalachian Mountains there. They used to be higher than the Himalayas. Yeah. And they're older than dirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're actually dirt's daddy and mommy. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you know, you, you, you drove out here with me. Yeah. And you you saw what we drove up and down and around. Yeah. Now try to think about getting from here to there with a buckboard and two horses and transporting a massive amount of fresh produce. Right. That's just not mm-hmm. fucking possible. So it's, it's, Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's a supply chain thing. It's just like you have value in your land what you've grown. And you can create value out of that that is much more transportable. Absolutely. The fruits of your labor, you can trade for the fruits of somebody else's labor that you need to survive. Salt and flour, spices, maybe a little gingham. I'm going to just say this. I would trade all my fucking gingham for that grape <laughs> moonshine. There, there might not be enough gingham in your case to, <laughs> to buy that. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, yeah, Julia doesn't, you know, she doesn't care much for gingham, so I wouldn't have to worry about that. She doesn't drink the alcohol, so it would be yeah, all mine anyway. Absolutely. Uh, I've got it all figured out. My gingham for Kevin Bankin's moonshine trade. All right, well, let's get into this butternut. You cannot put this in a styrofoam cup. It'll pour right through a styrofoam cup. Get the fuck out. Yeah. What what an amazing visual for what it's doing to our insides right now. <laughs> I mean, I know we're not made of styrofoam, but we do have like, you know, they're like little pink pretty parts inside there that are <laughs> all my little pink pretty parts go <laughs> They they uh they've developed a natural affinity for butternut. I mean that's so that's a fucked up thing. Like this is a this is a water clear ball of fire. Always surprises me. It's so delicious. It's so good. I remember you, you had a sip while we were kind of putting the bottles together in the house, and you did like a like a leg kick, like a, yeah. Walker! <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of like that would be the brand if this was not, uh, you know, moonshine. It makes a, me do my rooster dance. <laughs> I haven't seen, wait, I, maybe I have seen your rooster <laughs> you, dance. You did see my rooster dance. Mm. So how, how does one who would have, allegedly be involved with the making of an incredibly fine, incredibly strong butternut squash moonshine. How does one go about doing that? You know, this, this kind of was born of necessity. A good friend of ours grew a crop of butternut squash and was unable to sell it. And I have a friend. We liked each other a lot when we met. We kind of fell in love over a still. We kind of looked at each other, and his eyebrows went up, and I said, well, it tastes sweet when you eat it. <laughs> There's sugar in there. There's sugar in it. And we decided to give it a shot and see you know, see, see if it would ferment. We didn't even know if it would ferment. But we thought, what the hell? Would, and all we have to do is drive over there and pick some up. Let's yeah. give it a shot. So we did. We're, we're, by the way, we're going to do this the way that like OJ, if I had done it, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. if I had made this moonshine, it would have been the case that this man that I fell in love with over a still 
<laughs> right. If I had made it, it would have happened like this. Kevin Bacon told me. <laughs> so it really is about the sugar, right? Because like... It's all about the sugar. People make desserts out of butternut squash that you don't even really have to add much to. Right. Um, you cook it down and you break it down. Uh, the thing that is hard about it is that it's it's a tough sugar to get at. It's a tough sugar for the yeast to infiltrate because the, the the squash itself is so dense and thick and it's it's a very tough fibrous plant so it takes a little help and this is your first this is this was this was the first run uh that i was told about good lord i mean it's just picture perfect i mean moonshine operations are fewer and farther between now as i guess you know kind of the low end of the market's going to find their, you know, kind of lousy alcohols that are mass produced, <laughs> right. right? You can buy cheaper liquor than moonshine. Uh, anybody that's selling moonshine cheap, I don't think I would drink it. So we're at a point now that the three two beer is not a thing. Craft no. beer is is everywhere and ubiquitous and strong enough. And is there some kind of heritage component where somebody would want to be making moonshine because that's like just part of the, the, the genetic fabric of this place? Well, it's I think, it's I not think necessary anymore. No, it's not necessary anymore. Like I said, you can get cheaper, you can get really good cheap alcohol now. People don't need to take their crop to town in a jar anymore. It's not, it's not a necessary thing, but it is something that has been in people's families for a long time. It's something that people can take pride in being able to do and do well. So if I said, who are the three best moonshine makers in Damascus? <laughs> We're not going to name them here. But would you know them? Like, would you know who is really good at this shit? I know several people that do that do this very well. For the most part, it's something that's done as, as, as a, just so we don't forget. You know, it's not, it's not that somebody needs to make the money. It's not that somebody can't buy the liquor. It's something that's, you know, it's been done in families for generations. It's something that's been done as a, as both a rebellious act and, a, and an act of necessity. And it, for all the reasons, it's something that shouldn't be forgotten. Right. I mean, I imagine it's true that, that, that poverty just has a different a different look to it these days in the sense that poverty now means that you work three jobs and they're paid like shit <laughs> yeah, and you're way yeah. too busy mm -hmm. and that you're just not in the position, like we were saying when we were driving up here past a creek, you were saying, well, it's not like the person in that house has actually got, you know, is going to find some flat land <laughs> to put their pot yeah. and figure out how to get that creek water running through to be part of this. Yeah. Like there's a lot of skill and time that's required to build up that it's not a feature of being poor these days. So even though there's poverty here as in every part of the country now and people, it's, it's less that they're creating these kind of products out of poverty and more that they're just slammed to the wall with the right. stress right. of modern life. Yeah, there's, there's, there's quicker, easier ways to make a buck nowadays. Right. It's not something that's easily done. It's not for the lazy. Uh, it's actually a lot of work. It takes some some diligence. So it's 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 not something to just lack, lackadaisically be done. Right, especially if you're out there hustling in, in the modern way that people have to hustle. <laughs> exactly. But now, you know... It takes just, too long to turn over. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I had another sip of this uh, butternut, which I would 
I would deeply recommend as a as a follow up to you. I would try butternut brandy. Wait, we have a we have a new plan. Yeah, since since we tasted it first, Kings County, right? Brandy, butternut. I think we should go butternut brandy, Kings County now. And well, what's the difference going back downhill? You're the alleged moonshiner, so I'm gonna <laughs> allegedly take your allegedly excellent advice. Well, this prop water that we're drinking now, in place of any actual alleged. Illegal distillate. <laughs> That's right. It's like, what, what were they smoking in uh, Mad Men? It was supposedly, like, they were smoking, like, uh, cardamom or some shit, you know, like, just like these kind of fake cigarettes that would Rather burn. tobacco. Yeah. They would burn the right way um, mm. so they didn't actually have to smoke 40 cigarettes in the day. Um, <laughs> their, their loss, if you ask Absolutely. me. Um, God, that's so good. For people who produce this and are kind of in the in in the world of moonshine, it's also it's not just about like well, my father made this, and but it's also about your life, like your experiences and how you how you made friends in what conditions and and your past, right? I mean, certainly, yeah. It's you know I have made, I've made great friendships uh, talking about people making moonshine. Um, it's as much about the experience as anything. I mean, it's every every time you take a sip of a jar of moonshine that you had a hand in making, you you know you, you you think about the actual the art and the 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 act of making it, the the camaraderie around the fire. Right. This is not a solitary exercise, right? Rarely. This is something you do with with people generally well it's nowadays especially because it's it's not a it's not an act of necessity you're not doing it on the down low so much uh i mean you, you obviously have to do it on the down low because they, they do take this very seriously and it's it's you can't you, you still can't do it just for your home use this is not one of those things that you you know you, this is an illegal act i want to talk about that in a second but basically you're saying because uh because it's not it's not something that you're out there this is not your it's not one's livelihood out here. Right. Um, right. You're not. There's no, very few people are making a living uh, selling illegal moonshine anymore. They're they're too serious about it. It's not worth the risk. And and again, like we said, there's easier ways to flip a buck nowadays. Moonshine now is it's it's artisanal distilling. Right. It's, it's people doing it because they want to do it. It's people doing it because you know they're steeped in it. They can't not do it. They they want to do it. And one of the reasons is because when you taste it, you remember. It's one of those those one of those nerves that it strikes a chord in your memory. It's hooked in deep, and it just brings back the moment of when it all came about. All those all those times, all the years, all the people that you got to make it with. Absolutely, that's uh, that's the sense memory that you're getting back with this now. Yes. So you said that there's not a people are not making a living. There's easier ways to flip a buck, but is there still a market? Like, could somebody go and sell? You know, uh, I mean, this is this is a healthy. Oh, certainly, there's there's people that I don't I don't mean to misspeak. There are still people that make and sell moonshine uh, and make quite a bit of money at it. So this is a liter jar. This this uh, mason jar that that we had. That's uh, getting near the end. But like, what's a liter? What would that cost? Like, what's the market for something like that? I hear it runs about $40 a quart. $40 a quart. That's, that's what Kevin Bacon says. Trust that man on, on his numbers. Right. 
And you can, I mean, you can actually crank out quite a bit of this at, at once if you have a, a mind to do it, right? It doesn't have to be small batch. You're like, limited only by your imagination and materials at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can make a pot that's a thousand gallons, you can do a thousand gallons at a time. Yeah, but then again, like you said, it, even at forty dollars a quart, with all the the trial that goes into it, and and really the risk, because we're talking about, I mean, so and well, that's the kicker nowadays. Yeah, you've said because you know, and this is part of why I brought Kings County Distillery Moonshine to to make fun of it a little bit. Is like what they're missing from the label is, I mean, it's almost like marijuana, right? How <laughs> how people. People are facing incredibly fucking dire consequences for having been a part of the black market of marijuana, yes. and yes. you know and when it's quasi legal now, almost everywhere. Right, but to, to minimize what happens to people who are invariably, when it comes to weed, they're invariably people of color. When it comes to moonshine, I'm sure it's invariably the poorer, absolutely, and the more desperate. Of, of of the people out here who go to prison, who so what? I mean, what are the consequences? Why do people still give a shit? I mean, the authorities. Why are they still? Is it just another? Is like marijuana? Is it a way to police uh, a a community that that they sometimes don't always have enough? You know, kind of legal weapons to police or well, I mean, that's that's the that's the. I mean, number one, it's untaxed liquor. That's the that's the kicker. You're not. You're not giving us a, a share to the tax man, and that's that's what it's all about. And to a certain point, again, like uh, you don't, you don't ever want to drink moonshine that you've not smelled. Um, if you're buying it in any quantity, you want to burn it, see if it see what the flame looks like. What what should the flame look like? You shouldn't really be able to see it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it should be a a, a, a clear blue. If it's got any yellow to it, the more yellow it has, the the less pure it is, the less you're going to want to put it in your body. No kidding. So, yeah. That's so, e- just an easy test. There's several several easy tests that are uh, reputed to kind of give you the an idea of what you're about to drink. But the easiest is to just put a little bit on the on the countertop or on the car hood or on the you know, on a rock and set fire to it and see what happens. If it doesn't catch fire, you obviously it's not very strong alcohol. If it flashes and then disappears, stick your hand over where the flame used to be, and if it hurts, you got some pretty good liquor on your hands because <laughs> there's an alcohol flame burning that you can't see. And if it's yellow, it's got some kind of impurities bullshit in it. Yeah. So that's you, a, a lot of times it'll yeah. flicker a little. You'll see, you know, you'll be able to see just a tail of yellow, and that's that's okay. But if it's if it's bright, if it's burning like a candle. You don't want to drink it. So allegedly, like just rubbing, you know, rubbing some cocaine on your gums would give you some <laughs> sense of what you're dealing with as a product. There's there's moonshine versions. Absolutely, of that. there's some tests. So there is an element, I guess, when you're saying with enforcement that is slightly there, and this is probably what they tell themselves more than anything. Absolutely, from the they're, authority, they're they're keeping the public safe by keeping impure products from getting to the masses. Right. All those illegal bootleggers that are making illicit moonshine are out to kill you. And if they're keeping their salaries safe by raising more taxes or making tax, you know, outlaws uh, feel the pain, then, exactly. then just all the all the better for it. Hey, you know, and part part of their idea is come through the front door, pay your pay your fee, get your license, let us know you're doing it, and it's all okay as long as you as long as you tell us you're doing it. And there's a record of it, and you've paid your taxes. You're good. 
but is that really true? I mean, I mean, one of the things listening. So you're raising animals, including goats, and and you know, I've been with a couple other people who who are doing farming now, and it reminds me a lot, obviously, of my uncle who had raised goats and was an outlaw farmer essentially because he could not afford could not get a loan for the right. stainless steel shit that he had to get right. to make sausage and make cheese. And he knew how to make these things in these incredible ways, but he would right. never have been on the grid. Probably made better sausage and cheese than the stuff you could buy at the store. I mean, 1,000%. But was unallowed to sell it to the public because he couldn't verify sterility. Right. But so it must be like that for moonshine. It can't be as simple as saying like, in my own well, way, no, however they, I'm going to do want, it. No, they want to come and look at your stuff, and they want to see your stuff, and they want to make sure that you're, you know, following all the codes. You still have to, if you're, you know, you you have to, you have to be on the up and up to have your your license and keep your license. You have to be on the up and up. You have to be clean, and you have to be tidy. You have to keep good records, and mm-hmm. most of all, you have to write a check every time you get a check <laughs> right okay so so it's a little more it's a little less like the startup cost for a legal distilled alcohol business is probably not so crazy no i mean it's it's it, it is what it is it's uh you know few grand for for 20 grand you can be in business uh making small batch whiskey pretty easily Maybe you and me, like, that sounds attainable and, hey, no, no, I mean, not, no, not 20, for you. I, yeah, I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> 20, 20 grand's, uh, you know, might as well be a million. Right, but that's, I mean, I guess that's that's the thing about, certainly for my uncle, it was like, I think that number was 30 grand when he finally faced it down. And it was just right. like, it's fucking un, impossible. It's, it's, un, it's unattainable. How much cheese would you have to sell? How much? Exactly. How many quarts? I mean, well, we know you'd have to sell whatever, <laughs> 20,000 divided by 40. What's that, 500 quarts? Just to just to make back your costs and yep. and that's not even counting your time and your product and all this stuff. So you know, there's it's interesting because these kind of these outlaw products, these illegal supply chains, they don't exist because people in their heart want to be criminal. They exist because there's something about the system, and this is me on a soapbox now, but there's something about the system that is not respecting the way that people are actually have to live their lives. You right. know. I mean, I'm sure there's bad men out there, but they're not making fucking cheese and really fine alcohol, you know? <laughs> well, and, you know, to me, a, a big portion of this is it's a personal right. Uh, it's, it's not, it's by no means is, is, is it an unalienable right. It shouldn't be on the Bill of Rights. But in my humble opinion, if I wanted to distill and keep it for my own use and pass it among my friends... I don't see why I shouldn't be allowed to do that. It's when I want to enter the marketplace and make a buck off of it that I can understand Uncle Sam sticking his fingers in my pocket over. But this is personal use, this is personal moonshine, use. This is which not, is... Nobody, nobody, I, the story I got is nobody's selling this stuff. <laughs> you know, we're not running around in souped up cars at three o'clock in the morning, meeting at the wide spot around Hickory Bend. We're sitting in the backyard drinking beer, smoking cigars, telling lies, and having some jokes, and watching the kids run around and play ball and tag, catch fireflies. You know, <laughs> And the fact that that is illegal is their problem, not yours. Exactly. I mean, that's just, that's just common I don't sense. See how that, I don't see how that's a problem. I don't see why that should be anybody's business but mine and my friends. If you want to risk your life 
by testing the contents of my mason jar, that should be your right as an American. <laughs> I mean, you say that shouldn't be in the Constitution, but I feel like maybe it should. They, they wanted to put it in the Constitution. They just knew that their wives would get mad at them. <laughs> the, the founding. Uh, the founding mothers. The founding henpecked fathers. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the things I, I did want to talk to you too, because this this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, how you and I met. You you you've come back here now after many travels. Yeah, I mean, you, well, you spent a lot of time. You were in Texas. You were all over the country, but most recently, you'd spent how many years in Northern California? Nine in, years. Nine years. Nine years in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, you were in. Uh, your wife and I knew each other from high school in San Francisco, but you guys lived in the in the North Bay in in, uh, in Marin County, right? Mm-hmm. Out um, near the coast. Yeah, in Point Reyes. And I always thought it was so interesting because one thing I know about Californians is the way that they think about themselves is not exactly what's going on. <laughs> and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to prejudice like the conversation much, but I'm I'm interested in your, you know. And, and I'm sure this is still evolving because you haven't been back that long. But what it was like for you to be a Virginian and an Appalachian in Northern California? I just found it fascinating because, you, you know, it's not something that you can or would even desire to hide. It's in your it's in your voice. <laughs> it's in you who you are. People will look at the illustration of you in the in, yes. uh, in this show and they'll see that. Well, this is a man who looks... He obviously comes from a holler. You're not like, a, what is it, the Patagonia, you know, the Patagonia fleece with the, you know, with the name <laughs> of your private equity company. Like, that's not your, that's not your jam, and that's the culture that had, had kind of started to dominate in Northern California. Mm-hmm. So what was it like being Appalachian in the Bay Area? Well, it, it was definitely an adjustment for those people. It, it, it took them a while to get used to me. <laughs> right, which is great. I love I love the way that you frame that because you're like, there was an adjustment for them. Like they had to get their mind around it. <laughs> right, it, it wasn't it like took them a while. It really did. They, like you like, knew what you were up to. Sure. And I know you know the the stuff that you were up to there. You were working with horses. You were you were at Hog Island Oyster. You were you know you were doing the kind of things that you know how to do really well here, which is just make shit happen. Yeah. With yeah. with people who needed you know either the land or the the materials to kind of come together in some way. What do you need done? I can do that. It's a real fucking lost art, especially in a place where only venture capitalists can afford to live. Right. Um, I mean, I made a living turning light bulbs. Phys- physically made a living changing light bulbs and moving trash cans, and it's, I'm, I'm not joking. Right. And that's that's table stakes in most places. It's called like it's not called being living. a toddler. It's called living your life, <laughs> dealing with the, the the shit that life throws at you. What do you think you learned about? Because you're, and I I should say this if people haven't got it already in this episode, they need to smarten the fuck up. But you're a very open minded <laughs> guy. Like you're not here Absolutely. to say like, you know, that the way that you grew up is the only way or anything. You're no you're, way. You're just kind of a man of the world. And it it in that level, I I guess I'd be interested in like what did all of that teach you about Californians? I mean you're obviously listen, you're you're married into a Californian family. <laughs> yes. So so yeah, speak I'm, super I'm, carefully. I'm definitely bi coastal now. I have to keep that in mind. It's uh um <laughs> You know, the, the, one of the things I had traveled 
most of my adult life I had traveled as a horse trainer back and forth across the country, all over the country. And that was one of the things that made me open to go to California with my wife when she asked if I was willing because, I, you know, I've never had a problem just throwing it in a truck and going somewhere, throwing a dart at a map. I've had itchy feet most of my life. And I don't, you know, I, I like, I like moving around and everywhere I've gone, I've, I've met good people. I've met shitty people. I've met indifferent people. And I don't think there's anywhere in this world that doesn't have all three of those, uh, in some ratio, you know, I, I think part of the issue that I found in California is that where we lived in the Bay area looked very country. It's mm-hmm. very rural, all open space preserve and or uh, national park and or private land that's very well taken care of and very small communities. So therefore, it feels kind of rural. And when you walk around the streets there, you kind of have a natural tendency to expect the people to be rural. And what it took me uh few months to figure out is that almost none of those people that live there now are rural people. They've all come from a metro area, and that metro attitude came with them. So someone saying hello to them on the street and good morning, commenting about the weather to a random stranger was very shocking. And a lot of folks were taken aback at my openness there. But again, there were good people everywhere, and I made a core group of friends pretty quick and stuck with those people the whole time I was I was living in California and met a lot, you know, through through work at different places, met a lot of great people. And like anywhere, like I said, there's there's all 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 forms of the spectrum are everywhere you live. California's a, a pretty interesting place to meet people and get to know people, for sure. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's a big melting pot. It's it is a big melting pot within the big melting pot. But but that part you're saying about the people it looking rural but it not being rural is it it's a little like Truman's show. Like it's a set. It's a Hollywood it set. It is a set. Everybody's everybody's on the stage. Yeah. Um, very much, you know, a lot of folks play in the game out there. And listen, obviously like my you know, my father and his family's from Northern California. I was born in San Francisco. I went to high school there. So it's not like I'm I'm out for blood, but I do know that there's this sense, you know, when you watch KTVU news, they say, you know, good morning from the best place on earth. Exactly. There's a sense that it, that's very unironic, by the way. <laughs> They're not like, you know, hey, here we are making the best of it. They, I think there's there's a a perception, an idea of that this is like this is evolved humanity on some level. Absolutely. I think they walk around thinking that they live the lives that everybody wants to live. Yeah. They are the people that people envy. And if, you know, and if I'm looking for you, you know, for some appraisal of of what it's like and what that culture is like, it's in part because I'm kind of in recovery on some <laughs> level, you know, of like of that sense of like California is very fucking blessed. It's got sunshine no and money and yeah. and vistas and sea lions and these just like insane gifts that you would never you know expect to see all in one place but the, there there is a, a smallness to the understanding that people have and it's kind of 
Um, it's getting more narrow. Yeah. It's it's pretty large because there's an awful lot of them. <laughs> but it's pretty it's narrow. Right. I, it's uh, yeah. It's kind of this thing that I'm I'm always fighting against of like, you know, that the view of what rural life should be and like about preserve and hunting. And we were talking about this yesterday, like how far you had to go to hunt deer versus where it actually made more sense for you to, to go back to Virginia for a week to just hunt your fill and bring venison back to Northern California. Enough to last for a year. Even though you were... a week were, of hunting. Yeah. You, were, you were balls deep in whitetail in Northern California. Well, you just... Blacktail. Black oh, blacktail. Yeah. yeah just, but you, you couldn't... Could've, you could have beat them over the head with a hammer on your way home. You in could town. not hunt them. You could yeah. not hunt. Oh, yeah. absolutely not. Absolutely um, not. All the land around there was federal, state, and any, any place uh, that wasn't was already protected and harmless to animals. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we were talking about in the last stop I was at in up in West Virginia, which is where Bourdain had shot his episode, and, you know, we were spending time, and I interviewed a, a, a guy who had been on the show with, with Anthony Bourdain, and I remember Bourdain coming to Appalachia and being so excited, like, so fired up, because he was just like, man, the people are so real, you know? <laughs> and I totally identified with what was weird about that, because I have also been that way at various points, you know, and, and probably still carry a lot of that stuff with me. I'm like, you know, because every time I come to Damascus, which is, is maybe my third time, yeah. I always have the best time. I just, I fall in love so many times with people that I meet and talk to and, and you, you know, more than anybody. And then and I'm always in the back of my head, just like, well, what the fuck did you expect? Right. <laughs> you're, like, you're not an asshole. <laughs> I mean, normal people like you, Nathan. <laughs> Thanks. They have a pretty good time with you. I appreciate it. But no, but it's that sense of like, I think there, I, there is a strain of assholery. Like that's that when you get so excited about how great it is to be in a place like Appalachia and find that you have stuff in common with people. Well, but you grew up and live in proximity to many assholes. <laughs> that's, so, and, I mean, right. That's the recovery program that I'm in, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. I mean, that's and that's exactly the thing is like and that's and, and, you know, Tony, to his credit, also had, you know, he'd identified some of this, but still that sure. like that core glee of just like I've come from New York City and they have accepted me. Yes. Exactly. Around their fire. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, well, that's actually kind of what they do. And then and then you see that, like, you know, people are people like you said there's you know the good the bad the indifferent yep. they exist everywhere uh and they exist out here as they they do uh in in northern california but it's just like i don't know I, i'm always i'm always on this weird roller coaster where i'm like i'm so excited about it and then i'm always checking myself and i'm just like well why am i excited i think a part of it is that people here for the most part take you at face value if you walk up to their fire and smile, tell jokes, and ask questions, and are civil, uh, you're going to get along with just about everybody here. pretty quick way to find trouble is to walk to somebody's fire and not be that way. And most of the folks, you know, they give me a chance, and you piss them off once, they might let you walk back to the fire, but twice, <laughs> you're no longer welcome. But until you until you earn that, you're you're welcome because you know I might need a hand someday too. 
Yeah. And you might be the one that comes up the road when I've got a flat tire or, you know, my wagon just went in a ditch or whatever the need may be. Well, and we did have to take a leak once in Central Park, and I told you the best place to do it. Absolutely. You did. (laughs) I I have something to offer in this relationship. (laughs) Absolutely. When navigating an urban forest, I want you by my side. To to keep you free from tickets from the cops. But I, I mean, it's and I should say, like, obviously, there's there's an element that, that you know, sort of saying, well, I've I've been accepted here, and and I I have also Scots Irish blood and German blood, and the, all the shit that is like part of the Appalachian mix. My wife, who does not, has also never felt a hint of like anything but just just great love, and like you know, we had a big big family holiday celebration yeah, with everybody yesterday. Yeah. It's like this is legit and kind of cuts across the swath, you know, in some way. And I think it's right. It's like that, that sense of like, you know, what are you doing? How do you prove it? Which I don't, I I don't know what the difference is because, you know, Northern California has such amazing people and there's also like, they have their own codes that they live by, but there is something different about it. A, a a genuine rural, like not a, not a real estate rural environment (laughs) that, that does just have a different culture attached to it. Of course, I'm coming down here and talking to you, and I'll never understand any of it. I'll never know where I came from and where you come from and what it all means. But that's why we drink, and then that's why we drink. At the end of the day, it's like that's why we continue to drink. Then, then I can just kind of quiet the voices in my head and not worry too much about. (laughs) If you drink just enough, you've got something clever to say back to the voices. So (laughs) I find myself. So short of those rebuttals these days, but yeah, see, the Kings County just seems even less proofed. Yeah, at this point, right? Because we've been we've been deep in this butternut, mm-hmm. and we've been deep in this grape. But it's great. I mean, it's like a chaser. It's it's a great back. <laughs> I mean, I'll have a liquor yeah. and a Kings County back, please. All right, well, hey, and it is delicious. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm busting on it a little bit, but it's because it's made for the consumer. It's, it's backed down to a, a nice public face. Right, probably where it's they... It's not back alley at all. It's, it's wearing a suit and tie and ringing your front doorbell. It's, it's not waiting in a back alley for you. Yeah, anywhere. but before it cleaned up, it was in a hoodie, you know, and... Uh, oh, it's got tattoos. Yeah. It's it, definitely got some scars and tattoos. It was at a technical death metal concert <laughs> over the weekend, <laughs> but is now in a suit and tie. Yeah, exactly. I, Hair's I, all combed. I feel that. It, I should say, as a as a wrap-up, because we're going to continue drinking this on, on the porch in this... Definitely. ...in this fucking federal land. The sky is just some kind of topaz, and... You had said it like these are the Smoky Mountains. Like yes. you don't take it for granted that you could see as far as as you no, put it as no. as the human eye can physically see. You can see as far as you can see today. Yeah, today is one of. I'm going to give this one of the top ten days that I'm going to have all year. I just, it'd be hard to put one above this right now. Anyway, there's going to be some epic swimming later in the rivers around here, but right now during uh, dogwood winter. I don't think you could ask for any better. It's beautiful. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for miscegenating with Californians so that I could come and be a part of your life uh, when, when I'm able. I've miscegenated everywhere I've been. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a habit and a hobby and yeah. something I'm never going to stop. There's not a crowd I won't dive into. 
beautiful. You heard it there. Ladies, watch watch out. Hey, I ain't scared of the fellas neither. <laughs> They're all I can defend myself. <laughs> he's, he's coming. All right. Thank you, Kevin. What a pleasure, man. Yeah. Have a great day. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mukanyadze, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle was our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Mac Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. A couple weeks ago, Kevin Forrester had a big birthday. He turned 50. Happy birthday to you, Kevin. I also wanted to dedicate this episode to the matriarch, Pat Sullivan, who I guess would be Kevin's grandmother-in-law. Pat passed away in California at the age of 101 years old. Hell of a run. Next week, can it be already? Next Thursday, we will be having the last episode from Appalachia. We are ending on a high note, though, literally. We'll be in the high mountains of North Carolina with Chef Katie Button, whose Appalachian story is a bit different because it is about being a newcomer to this place, about having sought and found her home in this part of the world. I don't really want to end this road trip, but if we have to, and we do, Katie's wonderful restaurant mind is a great place to do it. Asheville, North Carolina. We will meet you there.